Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, where we will be discussing issues of the day, opportunities of the moment in a fiercely nonpartisan policy-oriented way. And today we're going to be back on journalism and the state of journalism today with a renowned writer. And we welcome to the Common Bridge today, Mr. Kevin Allen. Kevin, it's good to see you. My pleasure. Kevin is a renowned sports journalist and who has been inducted into the National Hockey League's Hall of Fame because for almost 50 years, He's covered the National Hockey League, including 30 years as the USA Today's hockey writer. He's authored more than 20 books, covered over 600 games, including 25 Stanley Cup finals and seven Olympics, as well as the NCAA Final Four, the World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals. But beyond sports, he's interviewed Jimmy Carter, Al Gore, Michael J. Fox, John Hamm, Tim Robbins, and a host of other luminaries of our time. While sports reporting has been Mr. Allen's forte and a great way to earn a living, he's first and foremost a journalist and an author. It's been my pleasure to call him a friend for many years. He has a view on contemporary America and our reporting industry. So again, we welcome to the Common Bridge my friend and accomplished writer, Mr. Kevin Allen. So Kevin, our audience likes to know a little bit about the background of the people that are on the show. And, uh, you know, I could probably tell a few things because we've known each other for so long, played on some of the same ball fields as kids. So I witnessed some of our expertise and some of our not so good days throwing baseballs around and such. And thanks to social media and mutual friends, we're able to connect after years of raising our families and chasing careers. So tell the audience of the Common Bridge a little bit about some of your early days, maybe a little bit about your academic preparation and and kind of a little arc on maybe a minute or so on what you've done in the professional world. Well, Rich, I, you know, I think it was one of the, the few people that had the advantage of knowing what I wanted to do quite early in my life. You know, I decided uh, when I couldn't hit uh, the curveball in Little League that if I wanted to have a career that was involved in sports, that I better figure out a different way to do it. And I liked writing, and I thought maybe I had uh, spent all my time reading newspapers. I delivered newspapers, and before I went on my route, I would uh, pull it out and read the sports section. Then I thought, you know, this looks like a great way to make a living. So uh, because of that, you know, I, I could focus on that uh, pretty early. And even in high school, when I went to Wayne Memorial High School, the teachers there, Daryl Emerson was my teacher. He figured out that I really was sincere and dedicated. And, uh, you know, he kind of crafted a, a program to sort of help me get on my way. And, you know, I was able to come out of high school and actually go to work with the Ypsilanti Press, which was a daily. I was 17 years old. And when I started to get paid, I covered high school sports. And of course, I was able to go to college at Eastern Michigan University. And there I got on the college paper. And I always say that my days on the college paper probably prepared me more than any other college classes that I had because, you know, it was hands-on experience. We covered the city, we covered politics, we covered everything. 
And from there, I had uh, you know an internship at a Weekly Chain in Michigan. I went out to Arizona and worked for a daily out there, and then came back. And then I ended up at the Port Huron Times Herald, which turned out to be my big break because in 1984, the Tigers got off to a great start, 35 and five. And oh, yeah. I was, of course, situated in Port Huron, which is you know an hour plus to Detroit. They needed someone. The Gannett Chain did to cover those hot Tigers. I was elected. You know, I covered uh, you know probably forty games that year. I went to spring training the next year, and the next thing I knew, I was at USA Today. It was one of the challenges keeping the smile off your face when they said, "Alan, get down to the corner of Michigan and Trumbull, and we're going to pay you to go there." <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I grew up, you know, in Wayne, Michigan. And, you know, I would get on the bus for 35 cents one way to go to the Tiger game. So I grew up, you know, loving the sport of baseball. And when I went to USA Today, I thought I would continue in that regard. But when I got there, there was a lot of baseball writers. And there was a a gentleman who had left hockey to go to baseball. And they were going to look for, conduct a national search for a hockey writer. And the guy, the late Rod Beaton, said to the sports editor, you know, Kevin's from Michigan. He probably speaks hockey fluently. Well, I had actually covered the Red Wings training camp, Steve Eisenman's first training camp. So I did have some hockey experience. And when the sports editor said, could you do this for us while we do the search? I said, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. And they gave it to me on a temporary basis. And as you mentioned, more than 30 years later, I was still doing the job on a temporary basis. You're highly respected and you've earned your stripes. Well, today you're writing for a new publication. Yeah, I am. Um, You know, after uh, Classic Story in America, there was a merger and I had been there a long time. Therefore, I was at the top of the salary structure. So those are the people that usually get moved out. I anticipated that was going to happen. It did. I looked at possibly retiring and I decided I wasn't really ready. So I ended up taking a job with Detroit Hockey Now, which was is a new website. I'm officially uh, the editor in chief of it, although basically... I'm a, sort of a beat writer for the Red Wings. And then I also maintain the ties with the Hockey Buzz website, which still gives me my national platform. So I do national columns for that website as well. And then, you know, I, I freelance and do things. I just finished a book with Detroit Tigers great Willie Horton. I did another one with Bernie Nichols, the former all-star NHL player as well. So I, I've kept pretty busy. You have, and your productivity is amazing. Kevin, you know enough about what I've been up to over the last many decades, and you know that the Common Bridge was started based on a frustration with an unresponsive and highly polarized government. You know, we have elected people competing against each other and not addressing issues. And all of this, in my humble opinion, is possible because that treasured fourth estate has abandoned its crucial role of holding those elected accountable. Instead, they're joining the fray of partisanship. And I'm an eternal optimist. I see the integrity of those battling back. There's a lot more people that are fiercely nonpartisan that are joining us on the common bridge, and most of them just afraid to speak up. But I also see some brave souls calling out the formerly noble reporting industry for abdicating their position of trust. And, you know, we've had on this show, we've had Joe Ferrolo, Moore Krim, Thomas Frank, Matt Taibbi, Stuart Taylor, and others. And they've all called out the same issue. And one of the parallels they draw is that political reporting and, and general reporting has become more like sports reporting. 
And so today, that's what I was hoping we could get is a a learned view from a person like yourself who's traveled around the world. You've witnessed some very powerful people in their unguarded moments, and you can bring those insights about where the heck are we with journalism and reporting. And so, as always, I'm you know anticipating some education and maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll get to some policy ideas as well. But let me start by asking this, Kevin. When you're writing about sports, are you writing to inform and entertain the fans. And and when you began your career, was that also what you were supposed to be doing? You know, inform and entertain. And if if, if I'm correct about that, is that the norm for general reporting, especially political reporting, or is it something else? Are they are they different or should they be different? Well, you've already in your opening question gotten your arms around the whole situation in journalism. And that is is that the mission has changed dramatically from the time I started to where we are today. And, you know, when I started in the 1970s, uh, and again, that was the Watergate era, you know, it was probably the golden age of journalism. We had the watchdog effect of journalism was probably never greater than it was at that point. They basically toppled a president who needed to be toppled at that time. And at that point, there was a lot of discussion within the industry of where do we go from here? And that led to, even in the sports world, when I came out of college, several prominent sports departments around the country were already hiring investigative reporters. You know, we were going to join the, the political world as well and doing very similar things. We were going to hold sports teams accountable. We were going to get uh, into uh, areas that we never had gotten in before. And I think we did do that for a while. But what happened is, in the early days, even in the 70s, we were still informing. We were in the information business. Uh, Even in the 1970s, people didn't know a lot about sports figures. You know, this was before social media. This is before the internet. So you were still just giving readers basic information and interpreting what was happening with teams. And, And they were happy to get that information. But as time has marched on and we've had the involvement of the internet, particularly social media, you know, that mission changed because readers had all that information. Like they know a lot about celebrities. They know a lot about political figures. They know a lot about sports figures. So no longer were we providing basic information. They could get that. They could get it in a timely fashion, in real time. So we really had to reinvent ourselves. And what has happened, and I think this is true in the sports world, it's true in the political world, is advocacy journalism became part of it. And what we discovered is, and through especially through social media, is, is that there was a group of people, a large group of people, that preferred to get their news coverage from their perspective, from their advocacy. You know, if you were a, a Oakland Raiders fan, you wanted to read about the Oakland Raiders from people who were almost fans of the team. Um, you know, we still now hear today from readers who will comment under our stories if we write a negative story about a team, what are you doing? You should support the team. Uh, Like that never would have happened in the 1970s. And I think that's sort of forced journalism to sort of make a decision. And it also came at a time when the economics of journalism was changing. It became more difficult to make money. And, uh, you know, there was survival, uh, survival mode. Uh, I remember being at USA Today where there was a lot of discussion because the newspaper was was you know, you know becoming obsolete 
people weren't getting their news from a newspaper. They were getting it on the web. And we had to figure out a way to survive, to make money. And I think that forced a relaxation of the rules. I think everybody pushed the envelope. I think we sort of were looking more for sensational stories instead of good, solid, dependable reporting. And it sort of put all journalists in a sort of an uncomfortable position of trying to figure out how to stay relevant and still embrace their ethics that they've had uh, for a very long time. That's some interesting perspective that I had not thought about, that you're right. We did go get the basic facts in newspapers. And now if you see somebody referenced in a story, you can go look them up and see where else they've been, what other activities they've had in their life. You know, And if they're in the entertainment world, you can see the list of every uh, episode and every movie that they've been in. You can quickly get that kind of a background. And then I think you hit on something there when we talk about the economics. The economics was we're going to provide you information through the newspaper. And so it's full of facts of people willing to pay for those facts. And with that business model obliterated, now it's about, hey, whose eyeballs can we get and, and what clicks can we get? And they, it seems that what you're inferring that the political reporting has moved to, you know, like your analogy of I want to read good stories about the Oakland Raiders. Somebody wants to read or listen or view. I want to read good stories about this political figure or this political party. Is, is that what we've come to at this point? I think so. Um, I, I think we're reacting to the way the uh, in, in sports world, the way the fan base is. But in politics, I think we're reacting to what's happening in the political world as well. Look, everything's driven by economics and you're trying to survive. So, you know, the split that we now have where if you're conservative, you go to Fox, if you're liberal, you go to CNN. You know, economics is uh, is important to all that. They're trying to survive, trying to figure out a way to make money, try to keep everyone employed. And you know, they do that by attracting more viewership and the way they've decided to do it, uh, rightly or wrongly, and uh, I think a lot of people think wrongly, is is that they've picked a side and everyone kind of knows now. It's, uh, you know, no, there was no announcement. We didn't have a, a press release where they say, hey, all conservatives, come on out over and watch us at Fox and all liberals, hey, come on over and watch us. But it just evolved in, in that manner. And, you know, now I'm sure... CNN feels they're doing well in terms of their economics, and Fox is happy with uh, their situation. Uh, if they weren't, uh, it wouldn't be like this. Some of the other people that have been guests on the Common Bridge have said that there isn't a market in the middle, although I do see and hear from a lot of people that say we just want to play it down the middle. And, and as you're talking about the partisanship in sports, which is understandable. You want fans, you want fanatics, you want someone to say, that's my team, no matter what. It kind of explains the the way stories are being treated. By way of example, there's an investigation going on with Special Prosecutor Durham and has uncovered some really damning evidence, yet it's being ignored. I'd like to think that in the Watergate era, that those reporters from the Washington Post wouldn't have cared if it was you know George McGovern or Richard Nixon that was doing the break in and spying, they would have broken the story. Oh yeah, because it was a story, not because it was aimed at Richard Nixon. It was a story, and then ultimately, you know, at the end of that story, the Republicans came forward and told Nixon, "You don't have the votes. You're going to get impeached and removed from office." And and if you think about that construct. 
And now today, when the attack mode of partisan reporting, it lends to partisan defense. So we still have people that are defending some unconscionable behavior by Donald Trump. I mean, and I'm not talking about the things that are alleged in the speculative reporting or speculative news stories that are out there. I'm talking about things we've all witnessed. You know, don't mail your vote in, don't trust the vote, et cetera. It's just unconscionable, but people feel compelled to defend their team. It's sad. Yes. Uh, and I think that's a good way, good uh, phrasing of it, uh, defending your team. And, um, you know, again, I think social media has played such a big role in the changes in politics and certainly um, in the changes in journalism as well, because we now have uh, instant reality for how people feel about what we're doing. And, you know, you certainly can make the argument, and I think it's a valid one, that it's a small sample size of, of how you're doing, but it's what we see and it's, it's, it's immediate and it's, you know, we react to polls and we also react to what we see on, on social media. And, you know, just to give uh, the viewers like an understanding of what we're talking about, how everything has changed, like, uh, and, uh, you know, in the old days, and it's true in politics, certainly, um, and sports as well, and certainly entertainment news, where in the old days, we would, you know, write features um, where we would give in great detail, let people behind the curtain to see what was going on. Um, and that would be a great deal of what we did on a regular basis. That is no longer relevant. Uh, you can't do those kinds of stories anymore. Nobody will read them because they feel like they have the story, um, because they're on social media all the time. The, the people that we used to profile have their own accounts. They're providing their own information. They're mm -hmm. putting their spin on it. And uh, it sort of changed what we're doing. And the other thing that really changed journalism was the 24-hour news cycle. You mm -hmm. know, in the old days, when you were working on a story, um, you know, if you started at nine o'clock in the morning, you would have till seven o'clock at night to get all the information and make sure you had it right because it was going to be printed the next morning and it wouldn't even, you know, you, you had plenty of time to get it right. Then all of a sudden when CNN came and we were had, uh, you know, you know, we're around the clock coverage of absolutely everything, anything that was remotely significant, you did that. You had to microwave everything. You know, the, 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 the crockpot approach was no longer in style. You know, you had to, you got to do it now. And not only do you have to give, provide the information, but you have to analyze it almost instantly. And I think that led to more mistakes. Um, you know, sourcing of stories, um, through the years, uh, at US, even at USA Today, you know, for many, many, many years, uh, we refused to do unsourced stories. We would not do them. I mean, decades, a couple of decades, we did that. And then they loosened it up just a little bit. Um, and then, uh, you know, the way it is now, you know, I'm not there anymore. But, you know, it's still hard. you got to provide two or three sources. But uh, I think around the industry, we've had a loosening of sources. Um, Look, it's rampant. Yeah. That when you see, well, a person close to the investigation um, an unnamed source at the State Department. You don't know who these people are, if they even exist. What did they actually say? It's conjecture a lot of times, and it's it's shaping. Because I think your point about analysis having to come out instantly, the only thing that really can come out is adding on to the narrative that exists. Yeah. There's not a forum, I don't think, for my analysis was wrong. And it's, it's formulaic. I uh, 
in recent weeks, I've been kind of beating up on people that predictably can come out and support or oppose a court decision because of where their politics are. And it's it's hilarious. I think they've they've sold their integrity. I don't know for what. I don't know. If it can't be for fortune. It must be for fame. But they that's their analysis. You know, the the court decision was announced. Uh, they got it wrong. Why? It was against my team. But you, you know something, Kevin, you bring up the the social media, and I'm trying to kind of figure out where these guys play that you know, our government is a a third leg of this. We have the reporting industry. We have those of us that consume that. Uh, We have the government splitting. But then we have these big tech engines that distribute so much and do it so quickly. This afternoon uh, that we're recording this, Twitter's agreed to be purchased by Elon Musk. But just yesterday, Twitter said they're going to ban ads that, quote, contradict the science on climate change. That was what they said. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Remember when vaccines, the, the quote, science said vaccines were going to stop COVID-19 cold and that it could not have possibly come from a lab? I guess we still don't know exactly its origins, but doesn't it seem like we're going down this treacherous path with the big tech and the social media running parallel with what should be good investigative reporting? Yes, Um you know, I think there are some some really good journalists who are still doing good watchdog style investigative reporting. And, um, you know, even though I, I think um, we've lost our way in journalism, I, I do think there are people who are trying to do it right. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I still see signs of, you know, on both sides, really, of, of journalists who are, are just still trying to report and trying to do a good job. And, you know, like I, I just read a story on gerrymandering, you know, in the New York Times, and it was about how in Maryland they, uh, you know, talked about how the Democrats, you know, they lost an important court case that they had been found guilty of, of making it more difficult on Republicans. And, of course, we hear it from the other side as well. But, you know, the New York Times, of course, is known as a liberal newspaper, and yet they still did the reporting on all that. And it was a you know, it was a pretty balanced story. So some of it is still going on. But, you know, as I said, I do believe that we've kind of lost our way. And I think a lot of it is um, we've put too much emphasis on social media, in my opinion. Um, and we're, we're reacting to their reactions. And I just read something. And again, that I almost hate to bring it out because I don't know the validity of it. Although, you know, it certainly suggests something that I've always felt. And the, the, the statistic was is that 3% of the people on Twitter are doing 90% of the comments. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's totally accurate, but I wouldn't be surprised at that. You know, I, I live in that world. You know, I read the comments on our website, and it's the same people over and over again. Or it's a bot. Yeah, or it's a bot. Um, it, it could be, although I think most of us now have sort of figured out the difference just in terms of what they're talking about. I think it's a little easier to use bots in politics. I've got to slip a promo in here to join the common bridge on Substack because we're trying to get a good dialogue going. And because we're behind a $5 a month paywall, you at least have to have a valid credit card and a valid email just to cut down on that kind of noise. But while I've interrupted you, Kevin, we're here something. I don't know how to think of this. I don't know if this is a good thing or a not so good thing. Because you mentioned the feature story. And I see headlines now says explainer. And then they go on to, to say they're, they're going to go a little bit more into depth or it's a backgrounder. 
Um, are you familiar with that technique? Um, yeah, and um, I'm also very familiar because my my website is dependent upon um, a number of uh, reads uh, to uh, you know fund uh, what we do, and uh, it's it's complicated for journalists, even those of us who want to do it the old way, uh, um, you know, because you hit, still have to do and draw readers in and you've got to find ways to do it and you have to be creative. And often that's sort of playing with headlines and stuff. And, uh, my partner and I, in this, uh, uh, venture, we have a lot of conversations about, you know, doing it right. And, uh, um, and also, you know, trying to survive economically and, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy. It really isn't because like I've had to dive in depth and in, in terms of Google news searches and, and trying to figure out, you know, how to attract people and how we do it without violating our ethics. For example, is it right to, you know, write an open-ended question just to suck people in to read your story? I feel it's shady, but yet on the other hand, I think people feel like they have to do it in order to get people to read their pieces. So what policies would you like to see, you know, news reporting organizations adhere to? It, it seems like what you're telling me is that there used to be kind of a code of ethics and, you know, maybe there was a shade here or a shade there, but, you know, if you were going to be a journalist, you, this is what you needed to do. Right. And it sounds like we've gotten away from that. Are there two or three things that you'd say, you know, what would clean up a lot of it? Here's what you'd like to see news reporting organizations do. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot would be helped if we could sort of figure out the economics of this so you're not feeling the economic pressure of survival to try to do that. And I think we may have to figure out a different uh, way to, you know, fund uh, journalism because I think that it is kind of, you know, almost all of us who um, are older now have gone through this period where there's been a, a major downsizing in the main force. Like, you know, I don't think I've seen a story on this, but I can tell you from personal experience and from my knowledge of the people in this, it is a lot, lot, lot smaller than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. There are a lot fewer people. Now, where the growth has been is in the independent sites, like, and that's changed everything. Like, you know, there are uh, sites now that review movies that are just incredibly important to the movie industry. They're trying to woo them because they have a lot of power. They have a huge social media found. They're influencers. Uh, and the same is true in sports. You know, there are uh, websites that you've never heard of that have massive followings. And they employ not as many people as we used to employ, but they do. So there's been growth in that area. But the main force, like the number of people, I, I know in USA Today Sports, to give you an example, uh, at the height, um, in our department alone, we had a, like 110 people that were, you know, sports writers or editors for USA Today. It's less than half that size now. And uh, that's true in the department. Other than the New York Times and the Washington Post, I think every newspaper um, and most media outlets are much smaller than they were before. So we don't have the manpower. That business model's gone. Right. The big capital intensive printing presses, trucks, distribution systems and the like, that's over as well. The news reporting organizations are slimmed down. And, and now the question is, where do we go from here? And I was disheartened to hear some discussion today saying, well, people are going to TikTok and Instagram for yeah. their news. And I'm, I'm horrified because of the shallow nature of both of those things. And can we stimulate a discussion? And again, this is where the 
the Substrat Group is saying, look, we're going to have independent direct-to-consumer journalism. And there are some writers that have a following that are doing really well there. And then there's others of us that are trying to learn how to write uh, that need to develop a better following. Um, what You know, like when I think about how the reporting should be done, but then it's how do we consume the reporting? And if you were to say sit in a room with the audience of the Common Bridge or on a Zoom call and advise them how to consume and how to digest reporting, what would you tell them to do? Well, I mean, I think that they need to find the modern equivalent of the 1950s style letter to the editor. I mean, one of the reasons why we are the way we are is because we believe this is what our viewers and readers want. And we're getting our information from social media. That was the point I was trying to make. And I think we need to find a different way to connect with our readers. Because as you said, some people say there is a middle ground out there. That That's who elects public officials, but somehow we have lost them. We don't seem to be able to find them in our coverage because all we hear from are the, you know, the hardcore liberals and the hardcore conservatives politically. And there are a lot of people who are in the middle. Um, The other issue that I think is major is, you know, you were saying that they're going to TikTok. They've already gone. Like the younger mm-hmm. group, they do not consume news like you and I consume news. They are getting their news from social media, and they're not investing in, in longer pieces. Again, they like the microwave. They like the 140 characters. That's all they need on Ukraine. They're not watching nightly news. And I think that's, that's a major issue, and that's one area that uh, journalism is not unlocked, is how to find those people and get them back. And I've had some sad dialogue with younger people who are buying into shorter pieces that are really more sloganeering, and they put out a false encapsulation, and they don't want to deal with a you know context or deeper facts. It's like, nope, I got I got that soundbite. That's what I think. I'm going to keep thinking that, and you're a bad person if you don't think that. So that's where I think the dumbing down if you will, on these short form, quick hits, that really is getting us back to that sloganeering. And that, of course, has never been good for the truth. There's even a, a negative connotation, like in news that uh, when, when uh, you know, even at USA Today, we used it, um, long form journalism. And that's the, that's the phrasing of people that do longer pieces. And they, the younger editors would say those words as if it was a negative, like, you know, I know you want to do those that long form journalism, you know, like like it was obsolete, like, you know, we're speaking of dinosaurs. And, um, you know, I mean, there's still room for that, in my opinion. Um, and we've got to make it palatable so that we can get younger people to come in and, and look at those pieces, because, that, you know, that's how it was in the 1970s. People wanted to see both sides of every issue. We're 50 years past that. And, and now and we've got these different tools. We have people educated a different way. And, you know, we can't go in reverse. Um, but, you know, that fundamental need, and I think you called that out at the beginning of our talk, was the newspapers were providing information and and how we get that information out. Um, and as you're talking here, I'm thinking, you know what a great style of journalism would be, uh, would be akin to the executive summary um, that, you know, you, you could write, you know, three to seven sentences to explain, you know, a 3,000 word article. And if people wanted to go into deeper 
parts of that analysis, they could do it. And that would be, I, I think, a step in the right direction. You know, and unfortunately, some of that longer form journalism has resulted in people burying their mistakes, you know, way deep in the article. Kevin, this has been really, really good and um, interesting because you've, you've lived this for so long. You're active today. As we start thinking about wrapping up today, what didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have discussed? Um, you know, I think we've actually, uh, you know, done a pretty good job of hitting the you know, the high points. I mean, obviously you, you, I mean, this is a very complicated issue that mm-hmm. we've, we have to get your arms around because um, it does feature so many different aspects. You know, you have a changing readership, you have the changing economics of it all. You have a, a, a much smaller uh, group um, trying to take care of uh, a larger group of people in terms of uh, uh, people who, you know, could consume the news. Um, and, um, I think there are people that are trying to figure it out and to do a good job. And I don't think people have abandoned the watchdog aspect of journalism, but I do think, um, they don't know how to do it effectively given the environment. And I think they feel like, you know, they have to serve their readers, those who are following them. Um, and I think that gets in the way of them you know, trying to do it right. Um, because, uh, and it doesn't help too. We haven't talked about this at all. And I think this is very important. When I started my career in 1970s, I was very proud, uh, when people asked me what I did, what, you know, that I was a journalist and people always thought it was cool. You know, boy, you know, Mm -hmm. you've done a, uh, that's fun. You know, that must be great. I don't tell anybody what I do now because it's no longer a respected profession. Um, and, um, I think, you know, that some of that is uh, not our fault, but some of it is. Um, and I think uh, it's a mixed bag. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues that we have to get back so that people um, have great trust in us. I, you know, I, I have a, just an anecdote that when I first started uh, USA Today, we like to do man on the street interviews. You know, I remember uh, living in uh, outside Washington, D.C. in a Super Bowl, I'd go to a bar and write a story about people's reaction to what was going on in the Super Bowl. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you said you were from USA Today and everybody would talk to you. I was at Ohio State about three years ago. I was doing a story about their uh, coach um, and uh, what was happening there. And I tried to do a man in the street interview and people would walk up to me and basically stand by me. And as people walked up saying, don't talk to him, he's a journalist. Wow. Um, and steer people away. Th- that's the difference. Um, people were happy to talk to journalists. Today, they're not. Um, and uh, it's just much more difficult. And uh, uh, I think until we solve that and get the respect back, it's going to be hard for us to solve the, um, well, you know, the bigger issues. That Look, I think that is a, a great uh, topper for our talk today, uh, because I think that's really sums it up is there's no fear in listening, even if you disagree, but think about considering the perspective and considering, you know, who's shaping the story, who's censoring the story, what do they want you to think? And, you know, what's that acute angle? What happens next? What was left out of the story? Those are the kinds of things people can do as news consumers. Kevin, any final closing thought for us today? I really appreciate you being on the show and it's always good to see you. 
No, uh, I'm happy to be here. Always happy to talk about journalists. Uh, like you, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think we can solve these problems, but we have to work at them. I think we just have to sort of recognize where we're all at. I think we also have to believe that mostly people are trying to do the right thing, but it's hard when you don't know what the right thing is. Well, great. Well, we're going to have you back again, and maybe uh, we'll hear about the Stanley Cup Finals for 2022. Or maybe, you know, I like some of your throwback stories when you were leaving the Boston Garden late at night and the rats were as big as cats up there eating that old popcorn and such. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, it's the only uh, old arena that I, I don't have great memories of. I, you know, I should like them all. I've been to them all. I was at the Montreal Forum, Maple Leaf Gardens, and everything else. I never had a love for the Boston Garden. I think it was the size of those rats that uh, I had trouble with. Yeah, indeed. Well, you know, the, some of them were trained to hail a cab for you, too, so that was good. <laughs> that would have been ideal. We've With our special guest today, Kevin Allen, a renowned journalist, a member of the National Hockey League Hall of Fame, and a dear friend. Kevin uh, has written and continues to write about many topics. Please look him up, pick up some of his books. He's got a great style that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Common Bridge, of course, is on substack.com. Our podcast product is free on most platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Buzzsprout, and Spotify. Of course, you can find us on YouTube TV. Please consider joining us on the Common Bridge, substack.com. And with our guest today, Kevin Allen, this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.